Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Dr. Terry Hartle, Senior Vice President at the American Council on Education, joins Brownstein Strategic Advisor Senator Mark Begich for a discussion about how the current political environment is affecting higher education, including issues related to cabinet vacancies and student loan servicing, as well as what can be expected going forward with the Trump administration. Welcome back. This is Mark Baggage. We're here again doing another series of Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcasts on many different issues we've been doing. Higher education is today, and we're joined by Terry Hartle, uh, Senior Vice President, American Council on Education, otherwise known as ACE, the major coordinating body for the nation's colleges and universities with over 1,800 college and university presidents and the executives at related associations. ACE represents all types of U.S. accredited degree-granting institutions, two-year and four-year public and private. Terry has led in advocacy and policy efforts for over 20 years and is one of America's most effective and experienced advocates for higher education, engaging Congress, federal agencies, and courts on a broad range of issues, including student aid, government regulation, scientific research, and tax policy. Terry served for six years as education staff director for the Senate Committee on Labor and Human Resources, was director of social policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and a research scientist at the Educational Testing Service. Thank you, Terry, for being here. Uh, Education is a big issue. I come from a family of educators, my parents, my brother and my sisters and uh, a lot of education issues and higher education is becoming more and more of a topic it seems but here we are new administration now about six months in the trump administration is in some ways have sent some clear signals to education policy through its 2018 budget and i guess what are your members seeing or hearing or what are they feeling right now now the budget his own first budget really and uh, what's the signals you're getting about higher education Well, first, Senator, thanks very much for having me here with you. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about these issues with you. And to see you again. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, The political environment in D.C. is chaotic and unpredictable. Um, Yes, the Trump administration has certainly sent some signals about a lot of things in higher education and many other areas. Um, But we're dealing with such an ever-changing, rapidly evolving political environment that it's hard to know what's uh, around the corner. I've been in Washington now for about 45 years. I've never seen anything quite like what we are watching at the the present time. The fact is neither the legislative branch nor the executive branch are functioning very well at present. Now, this um, is a new challenge, right? This is a new challenge. I think uh, in the last six years, we got used to the fact that the legislative branch didn't function <laughs> very well. Um, but now we have an executive branch that hasn't come close to hitting its stride yet. Mm-hmm. A big part of the issue, I think, is just simply that the Trump administration hasn't gotten their people in place. Uh, I looked this morning. There are 558 presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed positions in the federal government. So far, only 42 people have been confirmed. Right. Another 94 have been nominated. So somewhere in the vicinity of 420 positions, we don't even have a candidate for. So not even selected yet, and obviously within Department of Education, uh, within other OMB and tax policy, all the different issues you deal with, there's key people not there to work on these that things. That we can't talk to. Um, and government agencies run on people and money. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they have adequate money, even if the government sees something as a priority, if you don't have 
particularly the sub-cabinet people who make the agencies run on a day-to-day basis, the people who address the challenges that are inevitably going to come up uh, in the public arena. Uh, It's just a challenge. So the Department of Education is not all that different from other federal agencies in terms of getting uh, people in place. Um, There are 15 political appointees at the Department of Education. One person has been confirmed. Two have been formally nominated, and we have 12 vacancies. I was say, so if I did my math, you got a dozen still hanging out there that haven't even been named. publicly named in Correct. any form. Well, and as you would well know, a president will name someone, right. announce their intent to nominate, and a period of time will go by while the FBI does the background checks, right. and then the nomination will go forward, and, and then the committees, <laughs> and, the media, and then the committees will do their investigation mm-hmm. and make a recommendation. So it takes a while to get people in place. The longer it goes on, the more problematic it is. Uh, Government agencies can function with civil servants running the key posts for brief periods of time. But we're now looking at six months. And um, challenges do emerge when we have such a large federal government that plays a role in so many aspects of American life. So Secretary DeVos is, you know, obviously now the Secretary of Education, been appointed, has made some recent decisions regarding uh, loan servicing, bar defense, gainful employment, all those issues that uh, were, you know, a lot of discussion in the last administration, a lot of congressional and administrative actions were were worked on. How do your members respond to some of the positions that she's laid out in regards to those issues? Uh, I think very much a wait-and-see attitude. Uh, Secretary DeVos is really working, I think, on two tracks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Track number one is to revisit a lot of the regulations that the Obama administration put in place. Uh, She's already announced that they're going to delay the implementation of the borrower defenses regulation, the gainful employment regulation. They will begin a new regulatory process to deal with both of those. Uh, The second thing that uh, she's wrestling with is that the federal government, uh, federal government's Department of Education is actually a very large bank at the present time. Uh, right now, the federal student loan portfolio is roughly $1.4 trillion that the Department of Education has to collect on. There have been concerns about the quality and effectiveness and efficiency of the Department of Education's mm-hmm. loan servicing for many years. Because people take out about $100 billion in loans every year, the size of that portfolio can continues to grow. Everybody has a stake in the Department of Education effectively uh, collecting student loans. A couple of weeks ago, the head of the Office of Student Financial Assistance at the department suddenly resigned. Uh, Secretary DeVos has now named someone, not subject to Senate confirmation, who will step in and run that office. That's a Wayne Johnson? Yes. Former CEO of Reunion Financial Services? Yes. Um, Somebody who does have a student loan background, not someone that I have worked with or know, uh, but someone who does come from a student loan background. But the issue here is the government's ability to collect all this student loan money. Before they left office, the Obama administration said, um, we're going to have multiple student loan servicers, and we will wait performance in deciding who gets the government's business. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secretary DeVos has said, no, we're going to have a single student loan servicer, and we will not wait performance in deciding who gets the business. Two different approaches. That's going to make... Radically different approaches. Um, And the, the... to students, 
families to institutions, it the approach doesn't matter as long as it works. Mm-hmm. As long as people know how much they owe, when they get pay it back, get credit mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. it appropriately, and if they have questions, get someone to answer the phone. So the government is still trying to get its arms around how it collects this rapidly growing portfolio of student loans, Whoa. and it's 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 just a concern about making sure that works smoothly. This isn't a partisan issue. This isn't right. a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's collecting money. Well, you know, I I know this a lot. As you probably remember, I was when I was um, I served as seven years as chair of the Student Loan Corporation for State of Alaska and also the Post Secondary Education Commission. So we had to not only create policy grant loans, but we had to collect them. Right. And luckily, the Student Loan Corporation was a quasi government agency, kind of separated mm-hmm. away from the bureaucracy, political appointments, all that process, so we could do this collection because that was. The challenge, right? You could give, right. It's easy to give the money, right? Yes. There's no problem in people filling out forms and getting money. It was when you had to explain to them that actually you have to pay it back. And then how do you go about that? And, and the concern, what I'm hearing is from your organization or the general thought is, okay, you have this growing. I think you gave me an interesting statistic that now the student loan business of the federal government is considered, could be considered if it was a bank by itself one of the top 10 banks because it's size and it's growing at a rate of 100 billion in loans a year. So that in itself creates its own challenges. And if there's some function problem there in a system and how it collects, you could end up damaging long-term higher education resources. Well, it, it, what you end up damaging, I think, are individuals who That's want right. to repay their student loans, right. but who run into administrative problems getting the money into the hands of the federal government right. and getting it credited to their accounts. So they keep their credit rating properly. Right. Yeah. The, the relationship is between the federal government and the, the borrower. Right. Uh, institutions care because these borrowers are our graduates and our alums. Mm-hmm. And if they're having problems repaying their loans, they're going to be very unhappy with lots of people. Right. including the Department of Education and probably including their alma mater. Right. So we the, the most important things is that student loans be available uh, on good terms and conditions when uh-huh. borrowers need the money. Affordable, reliable, and right. able to be paid back. And that back. they be able to pay them back in a coherent, understandable fashion and get credit for it. Uh, what you, Your last statement there, that is a big challenge. And uh, I think your point is well taken on that. What So let me, so, so as an organization, I mean, when people think of what you do in ACE, it's, you know, the first thing, well, just higher education. But actually, your your issues kind of cross over a variety of departments in a certain mm-hmm. way. Uh, give me kind of, if, if I said, give me the top five, what would they be? Sure. Well, college and universities are large, complicated organizations. We have about three million employees. So mm-hmm. we are not just in the business of educating students. Students were large employers. And so, you're an in, economic driver in many in communities. In many states, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so, we are concerned with a lot of things that the federal government does. And part of what we do at ACE and with our sister associations is we think about what issues are going to be coming up on the public policy horizon right. that Congress is going to be dealing with and how will those affect colleges and universities, if at all. We have some interest in uh, the possible repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. It's fairly specific. Um, in one case, uh, teaching hospitals at universities um, may well see uh, uncompensated care reemerge mm-hmm. as a major issue that they have to contend with, uh, depending on what happens with ACA. Uh, similarly, cuts to Medicaid tend to have a pretty dire impact on state budgets. Um, state budget 
spend, uh, excuse me, a state spending on Medicaid goes up, it typically goes down on higher education and elementary secondary education. So at a sort of generalized level, we have some concerns about uh, the repeal of Obamacare and how it's done. Mm-hmm. The colleges and universities generally provide very good health insurance right. benefits to their employees, so it's it's not that issue. It's just what the unanticipated effects would be. And what the, right. yeah what the effect is. A uh, second set of issues that we're uh, thinking about, of course, is immigration. Um, roughly one million uh, foreign students a year come to study at American colleges and universities, and we hire a large number of foreign scholars and faculty members uh, to work on our campuses. So uh, remaining the destination of choice for the world's best students and scholars is in America's interest. Uh, Foreign students spend about $35 billion a year when they're in the United States. It's a significant amount of money. Um, The uh, Trump administration has made very clear that they want to tighten immigration standards in a number of ways. Um, We certainly don't want people that the government is worried about on our campuses, so we understand where they're starting from. But we think it important that the United States, for those who come with legitimate purposes, uh, be seen as a welcoming uh, uh, country, that uh, we don't hang an unwelcome sign mm-hmm. uh, in front of U.S. consulates overseas because these students and researchers and scholars will have other choices. They'll be able to go to Canada or the U.K. or Australia. They'll take their business elsewhere. We want them to <laughs> come here. So... How the administration implements changes uh, in immigration policy is a, another matter of, of concern mm-hmm. to us. Uh, tax cuts, uh, tax reform, something that the uh, Trump administration is very committed to. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan has been talking a great deal about this. Um, colleges and universities are uh, – Nonprofit organizations, charitable contributions are very important Mm -hmm. to our institutions. So changes to the tax code that affects charitable contributions could have a very big impact on colleges and universities. We're not at a point where we can see what's going to happen yet, but it's something we need to be concerned about. Beyond the radar, making sure and making sure it doesn't change the wrong way. Uh, Similarly, there are currently about a dozen tax provisions that help people save money for college, like education savings accounts, mm-hmm. pay for college when they are enrolled, like the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and pay off student loans once they leave school. The interest on your student loans is tax deductible. Those dozen provisions are worth about $35 billion a wow. year to students and families. Again, not directly to institutions, but to students and families who pay for our services. So changes to those provisions could have a very big impact on the people who buy our services. So it's something that we're watching as this discussion about uh, how to change the tax code begins to heat up. It looks like it'll be a couple of months before we'll actually see a tax proposal, but there's no question that it's something uh, that uh, when Congress decides to do something on taxes, um, we have to pay very careful attention. Let me ask you on on Monday. We have a little bit of time left. So what here, you know, the the date floats a little bit here, but it sounds like even more now that uh, the debt ceiling issues, you know, first it was late fall, then it was suddenly today, then it was now maybe summer. uh, But clearly it sounds like before the August break, something's going to happen. Is this a concern to your organization that, you know, how, as you know, there are some that equate the debt ceiling to, well, if we're going to have an increase in debt ceiling, we have to have a budget cuts to go along with it. And it's like apples and oranges, but they compare them apple to apple. Uh, 
but that comparison creates pressure onto the budget. Right. Do you all worry about that from an organization standpoint? Is that something, I mean, no one wants the federal government to default on the debt, but how does that affect higher education and what, what will be the the spin on that, I guess. Well, you're absolutely right. Mainstream economists are united in saying that the debt ceiling has to be extended. That there right. is no doubt I mean, about services that. Services we've paid for. You got a credit it's, card bill. You got to pay it. We have paid that stuff we've already bought. Right. It's not the um, future. The, the it's question now. is the future. And there are some folks on Capitol Hill who think we ought to tie our hands in the future if we're going to pay our bills that we've already incurred. Right. We don't typically get involved in the debt ceiling, um, but. Debt ceiling and spending bills, when they occur simultaneously, uh, tend to be a pretty ugly spectacle. Right. And it looks like we're going to get there again. Yeah, it sounds like they're going to merge in the same yeah, pattern. It, it, it now appears that we will – we've already hit the debt ceiling under law. We hit it on March 15th. The That's Treasury right. can move money around for some undetermined period of time. Extraordinary <laughs> measures. And we understand that it's now their, – their target now is mid-September when they will simply run out of money to pay the right. bills. That gets uh, ominously close to the start of the new fiscal year. So we'll have all the spending bills that will need to be passed at the same time that we're going to hit the debt ceiling. The last time we did that, and you were oh, there, um, yeah, it didn't yeah. work out terribly well. <laughs> we closed the federal government for 20 days. That's right. Um, so how this very complicated set of things comes together uh, is something that uh, ought to be of concern to all Americans, because government shutting down doesn't really help anybody in That's the right. end. Um, so we do worry about that. We worry a little bit about the budget because the president Obviously. has proposed $54 billion increase in spending for defense, no yeah. change to Social Security that's or Medicare. That's about discretionary because that's the But a that's $54 the pitch, billion right? dollar cut to discretionary. Which means – Education will be uh, which, touched. Among other things. Right. Uh, yes, it certainly means uh, education uh, would be touched. Now, the, the initial reaction to the president's budget on the Hill on both sides of the aisle and both houses has not been overwhelmingly positive. But we will have this double witching hour with the debt ceiling and the spending bills all coming due at the same time. And one never knows how that's going to play out. It, this is not a normal year. I'm not sure what a normal year would look like anymore, right. but this ain't it. I, I don't think there's anything like a normal year anymore in, around Washington. I think every day is going to be different. I mean, on some days, you know, for example, when the National Institute of Health got cut and then it got reinstated, that is actually good broad, but also good for universities because mm -hmm. there's a lot of relationships that colleges and universities have, uh, public and private, yes. with the National Institute of Health and those grants that come out to help create new opportunities, new health care, medicine, and so forth. But, you know, when you see $2 billion taken out, it's a significant hit that has a ripple effect all the way down. And, and this current proposal by the Trump administration is, like you said, it's kind of has a lot in defense, cuts in discretion. And I think you're right that Congress right now has kind of said, well, we're not interested in that. But come September, all these things merge, and you never know what comes out of the mix. Yeah, to use a basketball analogy, we go to a jump ball sometime That's in right. September, and you don't know who's going to end up with it when it That's comes right. down. Uh, NIH has enjoyed bipartisan, bicameral support Huge. for a long time, yep. and some of its strongest supporters include Republicans like uh, Congressman Tom Cole from right. Oklahoma, um, who's been very outspoken, and uh, Senator Blunt from uh, Missouri, who That's chairs right. the companion committee in the House, have both said, we like 
medical research. The federal government spends about $35 billion a year on scientific research that's conducted at college and university campuses. It's not just NIH. That's right. the biggest part of it. That's the one that people see, kind of. But yeah. it's the National Science Foundation. That's right. It's the Department of Energy. Uh, in it's Alaska, NASA. it's fisheries, for it's, example. It's uh, the Department of, of Agriculture. Right. Um, so there are a lot of federal agencies that are involved in research. And we could see a situation where even NIH does very well in research, but other parts of the federal government's research portfolio right. get decimated. Right. Um, and that would have a negative effect and, on our scientific enterprise. And research within universities and colleges is not something you can turn off and on. It's multiple year efforts, maybe in ag or maybe in mm-hmm. Arctic or maybe in climate or maybe in whatever. You've got to do it over a period of time. Uh, particularly in scientific research, That's right. uh, a biomedical research, physical sciences, natural sciences. Yeah. Uh, research is a multi-year undertaking, and you can't start it and stop it at will. Um, it's not like the federal government where you can close it for 20 days and reopen and then just catch up on the catch paperwork. Up. You can't do that. Let me ask you with uh, with our last couple of minutes here. Uh, this is kind of an interesting, you know, D.C. had a tech week, a lot of people from there. Tech companies have come into town, a lot of discussion about what does this mean, what's the new economy, what is the educational needs of the economy, Um, what are we doing to understand that. At the same time, I want to add a little additional thought here, and that is, as we think about what the jobs of the future are, how may they be tech or whatever they are, also this technology advancement we're having, where in reality... As the economy grows, you may not need as many people for those jobs that are growing out there uh, or those jobs that are becoming the new technology jobs or whatever. So we may have over time this unusual gap of a growing economy, not as much job growth as you would normally need in an older economy because of the technology. And then we have this gap of people, but they need education. So what? It's a it's a perplexing question. I've heard it from different people. I know Senator Merkley talks about this all the time. Former uh, Commerce Secretary Pritzker, I know she's out on the road talking about this, and others I've talked to. This be, is becoming an issue. Yeah. Well, talking about the future of work and technology's place in it, and the role of colleges and universities, and indeed all educational institutions and preparing people for the world of work is like walking into a fog bank. (laughs) Um, You get in there and pretty quickly you're not entirely sure which direction you're headed. I mean, a dozen years plus ago, you know, no Facebook really and and all this other, right? And that's that's part of the challenge that we uh, face. Um, Colleges and universities have to provide a good have to provide multiple types of education. Some people are going to enter a field for which there's a very clear market right now. They're going to need very clear skills to take those jobs, such as in the medical profession. But a lot of other fields, like engineering, are going to evolve and change over time. And um, we shouldn't try to aim them for the current job market because we'll be selling people short. Mm -hmm. The jobs we prepare them for might be obsolete by the time they they graduate. So we're dealing with a very rapidly changing economy, and that complicates the sort of technical education you can provide. Liberal arts is – pretty straightforward. Business is relatively straightforward. But when you get into engineering, medicine, sciences, technology, which is uh, computer science, a lot of things that are very popular among students, uh, knowing how to calibrate what they need to know right now versus what they'll need to know 10 years down the road uh, is a huge challenge. Let me, not to put you on the spot, and we'll end on this question, and that is, do you think 
um, the current administration and or Congress is equipped to understand that and support those efforts of the future of how to see that future because I know when I served in the Senate and any elected office I've served in it's it's always hard to get a elected body to kind of think beyond the moment mm-hmm. you know they're in the crisis all the time and especially right now in DC it's like a crisis by minute and because of that they lose their ability to think about the future or have those moments I call them the renaissance moments where mm-hmm. you sit back and you think okay 10 years what will that student need mm-hmm. do you think they have the ability or could have the ability to, to see that future? Or are we just, we're not in that cycle anymore. And I don't want to put you on the spot. Well, uh, uh, you have to work with these people on a regular day. <laughs> um, I do work with them on a regular basis. And the answer is no. And most members of Congress would tell you we can't see the future either. And they're just really about today. We're walking into a fog bank, too, if we try to guess the way the economy is going to evolve. But I'd say two things. One is that um, this Congress and this administration have uh, supported higher education. I think higher education has done pretty well uh, in the Trump administration. Um, Congress has increased funding for uh, the National Institutes of Health by $2 billion, as you mentioned. Year-round Pell Grants have been restored. Um, uh, The DACA program, uh, Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals, is continuing to function. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're seeing some folks in the Department of Education that are reaching out to us and the new political appointees saying, I want to understand how this works. I want to understand how we can do this better. Secretary DeVos just yesterday talked about uh, her desire to reduce excessive and unnecessary regulation. So I think higher education has done well. It remains a national priority. Exactly how you achieve it is, is uncertain. Part of the genius of federal policy in higher education is that it is not aimed at institutions, it's aimed at students and families. Mm-hmm. Unlike elementary secondary secondary education, where the federal government gives the money to states who right, give to the money system. to local school districts. Right. In higher education, we give the money to individuals, and individuals decide where they want to spend mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to go to the University of Montana? That's terrific. You want to go to Harvard? Well, it might be a mistake, but you could do it. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, the money goes to the individual, and we empower them to pick the education that they think right. will best meet their needs and their interests in the future. Um, and I Consumer think that's driven. And I think that's part of the reason that federal student aid has remained popular. From the Democrats' perspective, it overwhelmingly goes to in low and moderate income families. Ninety percent of Pell funds go to people with. Uh, incomes below $40,000. From the perspective of Republicans, it's a voucher. Individuals Mm -hmm. decide where to spend it. We're empowering individuals. And their own both policies melded into one. And it's it's worked out pretty well. And I think that's part of the reason that both Republicans and Democrats have historically been supportive of federal student aid programs. It's focused on low income, and it's in the form of a voucher. Well, Terry, thank you very much for this and, and being able to have this conversation with we do a series of these podcasts and we wanted to do one on higher education and having you here, giving some really good insight uh, from your organization standpoint. And I know you got a lot ahead of you uh, as Congress moves forward. And as you said, you're moving in, you're walking through a bunch of fog. Hopefully you'll clear it and students and families will benefit from it. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I just hope I don't trip in the fog. You won't. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Visit www.bhfs.com for more information.